the best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number six. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Today, there's more science-based evidence for God, the soul, and life after death than ever before. And so you would then ask, well, why do we keep hearing about scores of people, an epidemic of people turning to unbelief because of, quote, science? Well, we're going to answer that question. Uh, but most simply, it's because people actually don't know the science here. Uh, with me to talk about this and in following up on an outstanding new book of his, we've got Father Robert Spitzer. It's Science at the Doorstep to God, Science and Reason in Support of God, the Soul, and Life After Death. And Father Spitzer is the author of many books, uh, and we're going to continue to talk. He probably has the most thoroughgoing apologetics uh, program, the most consistent is the most evidence-based that I've seen, at least in this generation in the English-speaking world. He's the president of the Magis Center of Reason and Faith and the Spitzer Center. He was president of Gonzaga University from 1998 to 2009. And, Father, it's a delight to have you back with me. Thank you. Oh, it's always great to be back with you, Al, and thanks again for taking uh, taking this good interview, the time for the interview, and also for that uh, the uh, the apologetics accolade, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, I, it's incredible what you're doing. And uh, let's go to some of the problems here sure. that that cl- people have trouble with. So there's this general impression that it, it, people still believe uh, they just believe that somehow science and uh, religious faith are uh, terminally opposed to one another, yeah. and uh, there's been this warfare going on. Uh, and coupled with that is the notion that scientists are really, at heart, atheists. Why don't you mm-hmm. take those two points? Sure. I mean, uh, I'll do it in reverse order. Sure. Uh, today, um, more scientists than ever before are proclaiming, declaring themselves to be theists. Mm-hmm. That is to say, believers in God or a higher transcendent power. So the Pew Survey uh, recently did a, um, a a comprehensive survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And here are the startling statistics they came up with. The first thing is, among scientists overall, 51%, obviously a majority, a slim one, but nonetheless a majority, <clears throat> 51% declare themselves to be theists, hmm. to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power. <clears throat> About 21% declare themselves to be agnostics, <clears throat> and about 20% declare themselves to be atheists. Now, if you look at that, you go, well, um, the popular culture, the urban myth that most scientists are atheists are simply not true. 20% are atheists, 51% are declared believers in God or a higher transcendent power. But here's the really interesting fact. 
among young scientists, this is the 35 or younger group, that um, you have a 66%, a supermajority, two-thirds, 66% declared themselves to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power. Wow. And only 15% uh, declared themselves agnostic, and 15% declared themselves to be atheists. So now 66% versus 15%, uh, I think it's pretty clear at this juncture, scientists, especially the young scientists, are, are definitely um, have moved mm-hmm. hugely in favor of God. That's great. Uh, also, uh, that was not me. That was the Pew survey in the American Association of Advancement in Science. Furthermore, if you look at the doctors, that's the shocking one. Seventy-six percent of physicians, doctors, basically declare themselves to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power. Hmm. Only twelve point one percent declare themselves agnostic, wow. and eleven point two percent declare themselves to be atheists. <laughs> so, as you can see, I mean, it's really? right down the line. There isn't a group uh, in the sciences. The sciences that uh, doesn't have a majority yeah. of um, of theists in it. Yeah. Oh, you know, we had we've had some celebrity scientists over the last generation who have you know made have conflated their atheistic philosophy with their scientific research, and so you have mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. going back to Carl Sagan, and then you have uh, Richard, Richard Dawkins, sure. celebrity scientists like that that have got a disproportionate amount uh, of influence, I think. Um, oh, yeah. And I mean, I think with respect to Richard Dawkins, you know, he changed his mind uh, during a debate um, uh, in London, I think it was about four years ago, uh, he was basically debating Archbishop Williams, the Anglican yeah. Yeah, Rowan uh, Williams. prelate. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, uh, anyway, Sir, Arthur, uh, Sir Anthony Kennedy, um, uh, Sir, Sir Anthony Kenny yep. was moderating that debate, very important analytic philosopher in London. And uh, right in the middle of it, you know, Archbishop Williams had him backed up against the wall, Dawkins against the wall. And he basically says, um, uh, Dawkins says, well, you know, I've really kind of moved from uh, atheism to agnosticism. <laughs> At which point, um, Sir Anthony uh, Kenny says, what? Goes, I mean, you of all people, the founder of the new atheism, right. blah, 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 and you are now just cavalierly saying you're an agnostic? And he basically said, well, uh, his curiosity had trumped his skepticism. So, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, you just, it's, it's unbelievable what's happening. I mean, Stephen Hawking's, uh, Hawking, of course, turned on a dime. Um, you know, before he was basically resistant to any thought of a beginning and a creator, as he said, because a beginning implies a creator. Yeah, that's right. He was against it. And then in 2018, uh, he basically writes his last scholarly uh, scientific uh, um, uh, article with his partner, Thomas Hertog, uh, called A Smooth Exit from Eternal Inflation. Translation of that title. Um, if inflation is not eternal, and the evidence now shows distinctly from the Planck satellite and the LISA and LIGO gravitational wave uh, perturbation detectors, if they basically are showing, uh, if the data is correct, essentially there's just no way uh, inflation is going to be eternal. And if there's no way inflation is eternal 
as Hawking himself says, it has a beginning. Wow. Believe me, he knows what a beginning is. And then he throws into, along with Hertog and many other physicists, throws this into the equation, even if there were a multiverse, and we're not saying that there is one, there would only be a small number of oh. bubble universes, most of which uh, are like our own. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, wow, what a, what a change that was. Well, what about the I book mean, that he did uh, just before his passing? The Grand Design. The Grand Design, that was, yeah. Yeah, it was in 2010. Now, I debated him, actually, in the Larry King show on that book um, way back in 2010. And um, at that time, he was not... Uh, sure about God. He really did believe at that time um, that the you know, it could be shown that the universe did not need a creator. Right, that's what I remember that, the thesis was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's right, that's right. And now he's uh, like turned on a dime, like did a Dawkins except more. I mean, basically gave the, the physical grounds, the evidence uh, for believing not only in a beginning, but uh, the creator it implies. Uh -huh. um, same thing with Sir Fred Hoyle. I mean, uh, this is a, a while back, I think in 2010 or something or whatever it was. Yeah, he was a steady uh, state uh Theorist, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, basically, Hoyle was the atheistic gadfly of the physics community for forty years. Mm -hmm. I mean, there wasn't a turn of events that looked like it could be God that Hoyle wasn't there <laughs> in a jiffy, you know, to say no. There's an atheistic explanation. Well, somewhere around, you know, whatever it was, 2008 or whatever, he basically uh, comes out and he says um, he, he's seen the, the, the necessities for the resonance levels of uh, carbon, um, hydrogen, beryllium, and, and helium uh, to basically um, uh, have be, you know, so finely tuned in order to get an abundance of carbon. He basically wrote uh, uh, back into his Caltech uh, uh, journal, he basically said, look, he said, there are, you know, there are no blind forces worth speaking about. Uh, the numbers that we are talking about here shows conclusively uh, that there must be some super-calculating, super-intellect that has monkeyed with the constants of physics and those of chemistry and biology as well. Wow. I consider this conclusion to be beyond uh, the shadow of a doubt or something. I think I paraphrased it correctly. But anyway, there it is. I mean, you look at these things one right after the next, after the next, after the next, and you go, why is all this happening? And I think the reason that it's happening um, is that the evidence is becoming overwhelming today. And, and you put and, it uh, in two areas. You put it at the, the science point to the beginning, that yep. the universe has a beginning, and then the other one that the, the, the looking the at the, the fine-tuning of the universe and the idea that this life-affirming planet we're on is yeah. in some way a privileged planet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, basically, all of these guys are very aware of what are called uh, fine-tuning for life, or, you know, these fine-tuning um, values um, for life. Um, and uh, we've got, like, 20 constants in our universe. And uh, those constants, along with some initial conditions like low entropy, um, they have to have very, very specific values in order for any life form to develop in the universe. Mm. I mean, just to explain the low entropy we have in our universe today, 
uh, essentially the odds against uh, you need low energy uh, low entropy which is high order mm-hmm. in order to have uh, a life form right right and so uh, the odds against having our low entropy um, by pure chance at the big bang 13.8 billion years ago the odds against it are 10 raised to the 10 raised again to the 123 to 1 that number is so huge it is the same odds as a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare perfectly by random tapping of the keys in a single try. Uh, that <laughs> I is, love the in single try thing. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, virtually impossible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like having a, a huge uh, thing that spans, uh, you know, twenty of our universes and finding a pinpoint, uh, you know, specific pinpoint. Yeah. In the, yeah. Well, Father, hold yeah. it there. We've got to take a break, uh, sure. and we'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Father Robert Spitzer, uh, Science at the Doorstep to God. Heartily recommend this to you. Uh, it's wonderfully organized and laid out. You can follow it. Uh, so, again, we're going to continue the conversation uh, for the remainder of this hour. I'm Al Cresta. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number six. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresto. With me, Father Robert Spitzer. Science at the Doorstep to God. This book is a thorough look at science and reason in support of God, the soul, and life after death. And we're going to continue our conversation. I I have found, Father, that there's there's a notion out there. It's rather confused, but it goes something like this that um, science is our most reliable way of knowing, and yet science can't demonstrate or prove, let me rephrase that, science can't prove the existence of God. Therefore, um, we're guessing. Uh, you know, you're having kind of faith. Uh, behind this, of course, is confusion about what the what science can and can't do and also what is the nature of the proof involved here so try to sort that out for me sure um, first of all, uh, uh, science can't formally prove the existence of God, but uh, certainly, as we'll see in a moment, science can give evidence of an intelligent creator. That is right. And so uh, <coughs> um, the first thing to notice is what can't <coughs> science do? Science is what we call observationally dependent. That is to say that um, every scientific truth has to be grounded in observable reality. Mm -hmm. So science, for example, can't prove God formally, and it certainly can't disprove God either. Because uh, let's just take the disproof of God. If if science begins with uh, observable data, and all observable data must come from within our universe... But God is beyond our universe, yep. then you can't use data from our observable universe to disprove 
a being like God, which is beyond our universe. Right. So that's the first thing. Science can never disprove God. Anybody who tells you that certainly doesn't understand scientific methodology, right. and that's right. a laughable concept. The second thing that's very interesting is, well, can science give evidence for God? And uh, science can, as a matter of fact. One way that you just um, talked about in the previous segment was that um, uh, science can show that there has to be a beginning of our universe. And now today, we can actually show that if there is a multiverse, or if there is even, uh, you know, so in other words, if our universe is just one little bubble universe among trillions of trillions of uh, bubble universes in a huge mega multiverse, and that multiverse, uh, could that multiverse go back infinitely in time? Um, uh, as we can show now, it cannot. It must have a beginning. And the same thing with string universes. And we know this uh, from Hawking's um, proof that I was just talking about from 2018. We know this from the Board of Lincoln and Guth proof um, uh, that um, I've talked about uh, previously, where all uh, cosmic systems that have a Hubble expansion rate greater than zero, that just means they're expanding, essentially, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, greater than zero, uh, means an expansion. They have to have a beginning. So if you put together the Board of Lincoln and Guth proof, you put together the entropy evidence, now the Hawking evidence, uh, the Banks evidence, the Hertog evidence, you put it all together, and what do you get? You pretty much get, we can know not only that our universe needs a beginning, we can know that a multiverse needs a beginning, an oscillating universe that's bouncing back, you know, expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting, it has to have a beginning, and uh, even a string universe in the higher dimensional the space of string theory, that's going to have to have a beginning, too. So we do know that, and science can actually definitively show that, and that's the evidence I give in my book. And so the question then is, is that is that mm-hmm. evidence uh, more compatible with theism or atheism? Theism, by far. Yeah. For sure. Exactly. I mean, you, uh, any any uh, you know proof of a beginning formally, um, uh, or you know um, you know based on observable data, of course, uh, that's going to always favor theism, mm-hmm. uh, because of course uh, you can pretty much see you know this is just a quick uh, proof of, of the the concept. Look, if you have a beginning in physics, that means that prior to the beginning. Physical reality was nothing. Whether physical reality be a multiverse, a string universe, an oscillating universe, or just our universe, whatever physical reality is, if it had a beginning, then prior to that beginning, uh, that physical reality was nothing. Yeah. Number two, the one thing we know about nothing is it's nothing. <laughs> and the only thing nothing can do is it's nothing. nothing. <laughs> so number three, uh, then you say, wait a minute, if prior to the beginning all physical reality was nothing and nothing can only do nothing, then nothing could, uh, physical reality uh, could never have moved itself from nothing to something when right. it was nothing because the only thing it could do was nothing. And then <laughs> the conclusion, therefore something Something else, something which is beyond physical reality, something which is beyond even physical space and time, something which is beyond even space-time asymmetry itself, something beyond it all, something which has the power to cause or create a universe from nothing must exist, and that must be what moves uh, our universe or multiverse or physical reality from nothing to something. So, you know, as I said, Hawking understood that. 
all too well. And because he did, he tried to resist a beginning up to the last minute, but in 2018, he really changed his mind wow. on a dime, <clears throat> along with many others. <clears throat> so let's let's go then to uh, the the idea of um, the soul. Uh, mm-hmm. is, 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 is the soul something that can be scientifically investigated? Is it extended in space and time? Or is the soul uh, unapproachable? Well, um, it's a really good question because, of course, as you say, can I make a direct observation, uh, an empirical observation of the soul? No, you cannot. So it seems like, oh, wait a second, that disqualifies it from being then uh, an object of scientific investigation. But actually, you can investigate a soul from the inside, that is to say, from the consciousness of someone who can prove that he was conscious when his physical body was clinically dead. That is to say, he has a flat EEG, um, uh, that's the electroencephalogram, Mm -hmm. so he has no electrical activity in his cerebral cortex, his frontal cortex, his visual and auditory lobes. All he's got is a few sputterings of neurons in the lower brain. So that won't affect thinking, vision, seeing, I mean, um, uh, uh, hearing, etc. Mm-hmm. So basically, could you show um, that uh, somebody can demonstrate conclusively that he was um, alive when his physical body was dead, then, and you could show that for well over a thousand different cases, uh, you know, where you have a, an exceedingly good sample size, then you would have a scientific case for an implied uh, consciousness after bodily death. But if it's consciousness after bodily death, that consciousness has to be trans-bodily, beyond the body, beyond uh, physical processes and structures. Mm -hmm. It has to be what we would call an immaterial or spiritual form of consciousness, which we would call a soul. So implicitly, science can get at it. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Sure. Uh, One lady who, you know, um, uh, she was clinically dead, flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflex. Uh, One lady, she uh, dies, um, and um, uh, when she dies, her soul body uh, leaves uh, her physical body, and she goes zooming through the hospital walls. And she's right outside the, uh, uh, the third floor of the hospital. She's hovering there on the third floor, looks down uh, in front of her and sees uh, the third floor ledge of the hospital has a tennis shoe on it. It's a filthy tennis shoe. It's got its worn left toe. It's got a shoelace stuck underneath the heel. And she describes it you know, uh, what she's seeing. She comes back, you know, she's resuscitated, and, um, you know, the, she says, you know, t- to the nurse, there's there's a tennis shoe out uh, of this uh, third floor window here, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, I can tell you, you're going to have to crawl along the ledge between the two windows, but you, you, you'll see it's been left by a construction worker probably 20 years ago. This nurse actually gets out and crawls out there and takes the picture of the tennis shoe precisely as described which could not be seen from either window. Oh. Now, you have to look at that and you go, hmm, <laughs> wonder how she did that. Yeah. Or some, you know, the nurse comes in and says, oh, Mr. So-and-so, uh, we lost your dentures. No, 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 you didn't uh, lose um, my dentures. And in point of fact, um, uh, you know, uh, a nurse with red hair uh, took my dentures out right before you uh, put the paddles on 
me, uh, opened up a drawer underneath a machine that looks like this and threw my dentures in there. If you find that machine, look in the drawer underneath, and there the dentures will be, and there, of course, they were. And then, uh, again, you know, um, uh, this is uh, a really important statistic, which I'll come back to. Eighty-one percent of blind people, most of whom were blind from birth, in other words, they have no visual images in their physical brain, most of whom were um, blind from birth, actually see accurately for the first time when they're clinically dead, when there's no electrical activity in their cerebral or frontal cortices or in their visual or uh, auditory uh, lobes. So you're basically talking about a physical impossibility of sight on two grounds, no electrical activity and blind from birth. Wow. Now, this kid, I'll just give you the example of Bradley Burroughs, right? A 16-year-old kid, he's blind from birth. He, you know, when he has his heart attack, he's on the, on the gurney there um, in the um, operating room, and boom, he goes zooming through the walls of the hospital, goes up to the roof. And he's looking down from the roof of the hospital at the whole scene down below. And he goes, gosh, you know, I see it in snow for the first time in my life, you know, beautiful white snow. And, uh, and um, I, I, I could tell by these grooved, uh, the grooves, uh, parallel grooves in the, in the snow that um, those were made by trains, you know, train tracks must be underneath it. And so he's figuring all this stuff out. And he says, you know, I saw a grove of trees up uh, in the distance there and sure enough a tram comes by (laughs) and that tram has a huge sign on the back of it with an arrow pointing to the right and sure enough that tram goes right down the tracks and goes off and curves off into the grove of trees of course the one thing we know that trams and trains have are time schedules we know where they are every second that they're on those tracks in motion and so um, at that point of course Bradley identifies dead on he had his heart attack the same moment that that uh, train was passing by tell me how you can explain that in a blind person (laughs) okay father hold it there we gotta take a break the music has come up we're gonna continue the conversation with father Robert Spitzer science at the doorstep to God the uh, he's done a spectacular job of using science and reason in support of God, the soul, and life after death. We'll be back and continue the conversation. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number six. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We have more evidence now than ever before uh, for God, soul, life after death. And we're going over some of those evidences with Father Robert Spitzer. He's uh, collected them in a wonderful volume called Science at the Doorstep to God. And we were talking about uh, what are commonly called near-death experiences uh, last segment. I, I first became aware of near-death experiences back in the 1970s. Um, and the books that were being published then were, you know, collections of anecdotes and stories. Have we, are there those who are actually studying these stories in a consistent and rigorous uh, manner? Uh, absolutely good question. Yes, in fact, um, just uh, uh, last year in 2022, the New York Academy of Sciences 
basically uh, published a consensus statement. And in that consensus statement, they said the peer-reviewed literature the scientific, of the scientific study of near-death experiences is now so extensive. In other words, they based their findings on many good peer-reviewed uh, articles that had really good studies, first-class studies with thousands of people with, um, you know, uh, under the supervision of multiple scientists, etc. There's so many of these studies that now we can say, um, uh, uh, you know, that there is a credible possibility of your consciousness surviving bodily death. Wow. Of course, you can't get a scientific proof of a soul, right. but what you can say is there is a preponderance of evidence which strongly suggests your consciousness will survive bodily death. Now, that's coming out of the New York Academy of Sciences. Fifteen years ago, you'd have never got anything like right, that. Right. But now, the number of studies, like the Samuel Parnia study, 2014, called the AWARE study, University of Southampton, the Pim von Lommel uh, study, uh, published in the Lancet uh, uh, in the Netherlands there. Um, uh, you know, these things are just one after the next after the next. All the veridical data that I was just talking yeah. about. In other words, people actually demonstrating conclusively that they were conscious, able to report stuff outside the hospital, remote areas, etc., from where their physical body was um, during their clinical death. All these things are, are now compiled to the point where, yeah, the New York Academy of Sciences finally came out and said, yeah, the evidence is so rigorous, so well-established, there's a very credible possibility you're going to survive bodily death. Wow. And, um, yeah. Well, what... what um so let, let's. I'm sure you're aware of all the the attempts to explain away these experiences. So, um, the, the oxygen deprivation uh, produces yeah. hallucinations. Um, mm-hmm. You've got uh, uh, the production of weak transcranial magnetic stimulation yeah. of the temporal lobe. Um, right. The, what What are these uh, these naturalistic um, efforts to mm-hmm. dismiss? These experiences, are they have they been taken on? Have they been challenged oh, yeah. head on? Oh yeah, they they've been challenged head on by about four or five really excellent studies. None of them uh, can uh, bear up to the actual evidence. Um, uh, let me just go through sure. um, uh, that have been actually demonstrated in these studies. Number one, uh, near death experiences are almost one hundred percent accurate in the observations of patients uh, who were clinically dead, you know, flat EEG, etc. They were clinically dead and they reported data 100% accurately, many of them outside the hospital, etc. You look at a hallucination or um, a stimulation of the uh, temporal uh, lobe or a stimulation of the parietal lobe or one of these other, um, uh, you know, a dreamlets, anoxia, etc. If you look at that, it's notoriously inaccurate. What is seen during that hallucination experience of anoxia or stimulation of the lobes, uh, first thing is, is notoriously inaccurate and almost all of the time dead out false. Mm. 
Compare that to 100% accurate reporting. That's a big difference. The second thing is the physical brain, in order to hallucinate, the physical brain must have electrical activity. Always. No electrical activity, no hallucination. Hmm. However, in the case of near-death experiences, it's the opposite. During near-death experiences, there is no electrical activity in the, in the physical brain at all. And yet that's when the 100% accurate reporting is taking place. Thirdly, in hallucinations, hallucinations are notoriously agitating, anxiety-filled, internal disturbance, whereas with near-death experiences, exactly the opposite, sense of peace, sense of harmony, sense of an end to uh, suffering, emotional pain and physical pain, exactly the opposite. I mean, there's just no way that any one of those physical, uh, physicalist explanations pans up. I mean, they always violate those three really major differences. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I would say, no, physical explanations have failed miserably to explain. There's a really good book on this by a a very good uh, neuroscientist named Mario Beauregard uh, down there at... um, uh, you know, University of um, Arizona, um, and uh, you can actually read his book. It's called Brain Wars. Okay. Brain Wars. Very good. Um, let's go to uh, broader uh, questions regarding religious experience or spiritual experience. Sure. Um, in your chapter dealing with this, you lead off with St. Augustine's uh, famous phrase from, famous mm-hmm. sentence from the Confessions, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Um, you know, this is usually used to point out that we're made for God and we will find satisfaction in coming to know him. And along the way, there are p- people have testified to various experiences of God, uh, an experience of the holy uh, this kind of um, almost uh, traumatic sense of God's presence. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and there are others who have a, a different sense of the presence of God, which is uh, a, a transcendental sense of consolation uh, or awareness of another, with a capital A. What, how, where, does, where do these... Where do these stories lead? Are they bound up together in some uh, proposition that you can give us uh, that makes sense? Mm -hmm. There are definitely common elements in religious experience throughout the world. Um, uh, you know, it, originally uh, it was an American, William James, who tried to study them right. in a very scientific way. Uh, I think the, the very seminal book um, from the uh, uh, vantage point of philosophy and um, uh, theology of religion, <clears throat> or at least religious experience, um, is Rudolf Otto's book, <clears throat> the idea of the holy. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in the first uh, 40 pages or so, uh, you know, by the way, it's an Oxford University Press book, so it's not a, you know, um, a fly-by-night deal. It's a a very well, you know, justified... It's been uh, in print for how long now? Oh, since 1958 or something. Yeah, yeah. 
So. Yeah, and so uh, in any case, um, uh, it, it was a seminal book, though, and it got things going even for Mercia Eliada and people like that. But the main thing uh, to remember is what Otto said was, look, hey, there's a, uh, a pre-thematic, and what that just means is before you're really consciously reflecting and thinking about this, there's this kind of feeling, there's this sense, I'm just going to call it a sense, mm-hmm. that all of us have <clears throat> of what he calls the numinous. And numinous is something kind of riveting. Uh, it's, it, it feels transcendent. It feels mysterious. It feels, um, you know, um, uh, like uh, uh, fascinating in its mysteriousness and in its transcendence and its, you know, spiritual uh, sensitivity. It feels sacred. It feels holy. And he just calls it the holy other, not H-O, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, mm-hmm. the holy other. We're different. And he says the minute we encounter this experience, this set of feelings that the experience engenders within us, we view ourselves as creature. We are drawn uh, to worship what it is that's, that's appearing to our inner hearts and minds. And, of course, uh, you know, 50% of Americans claim they have had a significant, what we might call, numinous experience. Yeah. Uh, that was yeah. one of those uh, big polls, etc. But the main thing uh, to remember is that um, Otto is on to something here. And if you were to go to any, <clears throat> you know, country of the world, any religion uh, in the world, and just say, hey, have you guys had uh, religious experiencing? Well, what do you mean by that? Something riveting, something fascinating, something urgent, something mysterious, something sacred, something holy, something above us, something that's overwhelming yet friendly, something that just rivets us to itself and pulls us into a world beyond the, the here and now world. Everybody would say, well, 88% of people around the world would say, yes. I have had that experience. There's something there. I've, I, I, I resonate with that. There's something to this numinous experience. And, of course, all religious leaders would say, um, you know, unless you're a Satanist or something like that, but, I mean, major uh, world religions sure. would say, yes, it's there. And so you say, well, how do you know that that is God? Right. And, um, you know, how, how do you know that's just not you uh, sort of conjuring up this experience of the mystery? And three um, reasons have been adduced, which I go through in the book, but I'm, uh, you know, just do it very briefly here. Number one is whatever is appearing feels like it has a subjectivity. That means like an inner consciousness, which is different from our own. Mm. So in other words, I'm not just having a sense of feelings, like I'm feeling mystery. I'm feeling a mysterious person, as it were. I'm feeling a mysterious subjectivity, a a mysterious consciousness that has a perspective different from me, a perspective that's above me, and a perspective that's more powerful than me, uh, and so forth and so forth. But it's definitely like a consciousness. It's like a personality. It's not just feelings. It's not just a thing. Not not just the, a projection mean, of myself. Yeah. Yes. And the, and this exactly. And I the minute I experience it, I know it's not 
me. (laughs) It is a subjectivity, but it's not my subjectivity. Its perspective is different, and I know immediately. That's one of the big things. The second big thing, um, you know, that comes out when people try to, uh, you know, distinguish it is the fact that when we're, uh, you know, as it were, uh, uh, taken uh, by this experience, um, it leaves us, in some sense, uh, uh, believing, uh, you know, that we have been truly touched. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, by um, uh, not just this um, uh, mystical event, but by this mystical consciousness or something uh, that we might call it. So there's a, an effect uh, that stays with us uh, interiorly. And then, of course, the, the third thing is, is that uh, the numinous uh, correlates with what we call conscience. And, and uh, conscience is basically where um, I, I have this sense, you know, when I violate a rule, right, um, you know, the, uh, uh, I, I feel a sense of guilt or alienation or shame or something of that nature. I, I know I have done wrong. I feel like I have done wrong. And I feel that, you know, uh, somehow I'm, I'm held accountable uh, to what I've done wrong. And that correlates with the numinous. In other words, the source of that conscience, the source of the voice within me is the numinous, uh, uh, the numinous one, uh, God. Very good. Father, outstanding. Thank you so much for being with me today. And we'll talk again. My honor always, Al. All right. Father Robert Spitzer, Science at the Doorstep to God. And uh, we'll have contact information for you on the other side of the break.